Hi, you've just downloaded or otherwise accessed a podcast of Cross Point Church and the teaching ministry presented through our weekly Sunday morning worship. Feel free to burn a copy of this file when you're finished and pass it along to a friend you think might also benefit from the teaching. We hope you enjoy the message today, and thanks again for taking the time to visit. Pastor and author Chuck Swindoll says our greatest asset and our greatest liability as an influencer is found in our attitude. That our greatest asset for the kingdom and our greatest liability for the kingdom can be found in our attitude. You see, it's so hard for people to fight through a bitter anger, uh, uh, an attitude of animosity, an attitude, an attitude of entitlement, an attitude of my will, my way. It's, it's so hard for an unbeliever to fight through that to get to, Jesus, to, to the Jesus in you and me. Whereas our attitude, if they reflect, if our attitude reflects the likeness, the image of Christ, well, that's so attractive to people. And, um, and the converse is sadly so unattractive. But I wonder, <laughs> in fact... Um, I was at the store, grocery store this afternoon, and I like to go to the grocery store on Sunday, especially right after church, or after morning church, after people do morning church, because people are coming in the grocery store after church, and this lady came in there today, and she was, I don't know, maybe mid-40s, she had this scowl on her face, and I could tell she'd come to church, she's dressed to the nines, I mean, she was, she was, you know. Come from big church somewhere. And she had this scowl on her face. And look in her eyes, they're kind of squinting and walking up and down the aisles like, I hope somebody says something to me. You know, go ahead, make my day. You know, kind of. She had that kind of look on her face, and I thought, man, I'd hate to be her pastor. But, but I wonder sometimes what people see attitudinally when they look at us. How we come across to people. How our attitudes are, are, are they pervasive uh, in, in the extent of both good and bad. Can people see the extent to which we love them, we, we care about them simply because Jesus commands us to, or because we do, you know? Uh, is it owed them? Is it due them? Or do we care about them? Do they, do they genuinely get that and understand that? This passage, and, and we'll finish up our study of Colossians um, tonight, but this passage in, in the latter part of chapter 3, in the first few verses of chapter 4, are dealing with attitudinal things. And as I've shared with you, this teaching through Colossians has largely been to the church, about the church, and it is that tonight too. But he closes with our attitude toward each other and what, what others outside the kingdom and outside the faith see in us or from us or, or what they don't. So let's look at this text and come back and see um, from two, two different vantage points, our attitude in the home and our attitude in the culture. Picking up in verse 18 of chapter 3. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, that's the conclusion of our text tonight, so we're going to talk about that all. I'm just kidding. We're going to go on. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh to them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to carry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. 
Those who do wrong will be repaid for their wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide for your slaves what is right and fair, because you know that you have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in, ev- in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, let's go back and look at these three attitudes in the home. And then out of the last few verses, these, the three attitudes in our culture. First of all, an, an attitude in our home has to do with this first attitude of understanding. And verses 18 and 19 speak to this. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Understanding what? Understanding our roles. Understanding the roles that God has called us to and has given us in his word. Now, if you'll remember back in the fall, we went through a series in, in about six or eight weeks called Family Matters. And I shared with you then, in fact, we looked at, at, this pa- we looked at a passage in Ephesians. We looked in Genesis um, and as well in Second Corinthians of how God calls each family member to our various roles. We'll see what children's role are in just a minute. Are in just a minute. But God calls wives to submit, and that word submit, as I shared with you before, means to defer to, to yield to, as, as a yield sign would be on the road, that I'm not off the road over, over here somewhere, or I'm not in the trunk, but I'm in the car, and I'm, and I'm yielding to, I'm deferring to the leadership of my husband. The, the, the husband's role is, as well is, and we looked at this too, about the wife's role to follow, and going all the way back to the garden in Genesis 3, 2 and 3, about the wife's role to follow and fulfill and how Eve got out of that role. We'll talk about why she did in just a second. And the husband's role is to lead and to love. And when those roles are reversed, when wife becomes leader, lover, and husband becomes follower, follower and fulfiller, Boy, there's so much disharmony. Why? Because everybody's frustrated. She's frustrated that she's not doing what she was wired to do. He's frustrated that he's not doing what he was wired to do. And so consequently, our roles are reversed, and we're, we, we live a frustrated existence, and we wonder, in fact, I think I'll share this with you too in the context of that study, that you know what the fastest growing divorce, uh, 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 time for divorce rate is? Empty nesters. Empty nesters. It's mind-boggling how fast the divorce rate is rising among, among empty nesters. How many couples stayed together for the kids? And then once the kids are gone, we don't like each other anymore. We, in fact, we don't even want to be around each other anymore. We want to be separate from each other and go on with a new life. And it's staggering to me how couples will walk through a hard place, sometimes with kids, sometimes with each other, and then get to that place where they're looking at each other and figuring out, how are we going to do life together now that it's just the two of us and there's nobody else to focus on but the two of us? Well, if we understand the role from the get-go, that's why it's so important that young families and young marriages get this right out of the chute, right out of the blocks. If they understand God's role, his designed roles for us are going to fulfill us, and we get out of those roles, and we're going to experience a lot of frustration in marriage. He says to the, to the, to the man here, too, not to be harsh here in verse 19. What does he mean by harsh? It means not to take advantage of your role. Your role is to lead and to love but you should not take that role harshly. In essence, don't allow your wife to play a subservient role to you. She is to be a helper. She is not to be a, 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 a slave or a, you know, somebody that you order around. It flies all over me to, to, to be in situations where men are around other men, and they'll talk so masculine about their, about their 
my wife will do such and such, such and such. She's going to, you know, and then they, they get together and it's a totally different story. You know, or you go in their home and you see something drastically different than what they were talking about when all the guys were around and I'm macho. And I mean, and it's, you know, the, the problem with that is if we were in the role of leader and lover as he designed for us to be, we'd be just as proud of that in front of the guys too. If we were in a role that we, we got fulfillment out of, because here's the thing. Why is it that we get out of those roles? Why is it that, that, that wives oftentimes get out of the role of, of, of submission, out of, out of the role of deferment, of, of yielding, of cooperating, really what that, what that word means? Why do, why do we get out of that role and men get out of the role of leading effectively like God's called us to do? Well, I would submit to you it's, it's really in large part around one of two things of these two roles. One, and we, we went back, if you'll remember in Family Matters, and looked at these roles in the garden as well in Genesis 2 and 3. And they revealed that women's greatest challenge is for control. That women want it. They need it. You know why? It's because the control brings about some level of predictability about the future. If I can control today, I can predict tomorrow. If I can predict tomorrow, even if I don't like tomorrow, I can understand what it's going to be before I get there. Control is a great challenge for women. That's why they have problems sometimes with submission. Problems with that role of follower and fulfiller. Men's greatest need is for significance. What does that tell us? It tells us oftentimes men will be afraid to make a decision because they're afraid they're going to blow it. Knowing that when they blow it, there's going to be a finger in their face saying, you blew it. And you're not worth following anymore. And sometimes we're not. Our, our greatest need as men is, is for significance. If I understand that as a, as a lady, if I understand that as a wife, then if I give a man the significance he is longing for, that his soul is long, that he's wired for, He's going to become the leader and lover that I want to follow and fulfill. He's going to be that person that I admire, that I look to, that I will allow to lead and, will, in fact, will follow willingly his leadership. Why? Because he looks like Jesus. He looks like the role he was designed to have, and I will willingly follow that role. I willingly follow that individual anywhere they want to go because they've earned it. Will they make perfect decisions all the time? No. Men usually don't. Women don't either, truth be known, but men don't. We don't make perfect decisions. But if they know that in, that in their failure, there's somebody who's going to say, I'm still with you. We're going to fail together too. I'm going to fail together too. I'm still with you. When we get out of those roles, we get out of the roles that God's designed for us to be as husband and wife. Men become subservient because they're afraid to fail. And women take control because nobody else will, t- will grab it. And shame on us men and women for doing that. Because we get out of the role God's designed for us to, to walk in in marriage and we see what, what great frustration comes from it. And we see the skyrocketing effects, not only of divorce period, but of divorce among empty nesters. And it's, as I say, that's increasing at, at a rate of like 15 to 20% per two or three year span. It's mind-blowing how fast that divorce rate is increasing. What that tells me is, is that we were, we're going to talk about this in just a second, we were poured into our children to the degree that we forsook our marriage. And then when we discovered that after the children were gone, now, what kind of marriage, what kind of relationship are we left with? What are we going to do with each other? How do, we, how do we function together as a family? Those roles are important, and I think it's important that, that, that men and women see the significance of those in each other, what each other's needs are, uh, and understand that, that he's designed that from the very get-go, that we, we live and walk in that. The second attitude is an attitude of discipline, and this applies to parents and, and children. Children, verse 20, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord, fathers, do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. Well, most of us think as discipline, when we hear the word discipline, we think of whatever comes into your mind, a spanking or, or time out 
or consequences of some kind. Here's what I want you to see discipline in light of the scripture in, the, in, in, in this context tonight. It is this. It is this marriage, discipline is, of order and vision. Children should obey their parents because it pleases the Lord, he says. And men shouldn't force their children or frustrate their children. Some translations say exasperate your children. In essence, force your children uh, into the breaking of their spirit and stop at the breaking of their will. That's a great, we'll talk about that context in just a second. But this idea of of discipline being this combination of order and vision is what I want you to see. And here's, here's what I mean. When there is discipline in a home, there is order. Everybody understands these are the rules. The kids understand these are my chores or whatever. These are the rules. And beyond these rules, life don't go well. If I get outside the rules, there are consequences. So there's order to my life, and there's some kind of structure. It's the parent's role not only to, to put that order in place, but to put the vision in place. It's your, your role and my role as a parent to see further than your kids can see. To see that this that letting this, this small thing go today with no, with no discipline, with no consequence to it, will become a bigger thing tomorrow. And a bigger thing five years from now, and a bigger thing ten years from now, and the consequences are far greater in the life of a teenager about a failure and a decision than they are a four-year-old. So if I teach a, if I teach a four-year-old how to obey and how to stay within the structure and live a disciplined life because it's right, and because there are consequences for the decisions I make, it'll be easier when they're a teenager because they'll see there are consequences of the decisions I make. I remember that when I was four and five. So I don't want I don't want to step out loud outside the consequence. So if you'll see discipline as this combination of order and structure on the one hand that every child needs and vision on the other about a parent seeing further than that kid can see and seeing that they're going to need this down the road. They're going to need this structure down the road because it's going to be harder when they're teenagers to say no to that and this and the other. So this order and this vision that a parent see, if we can see the marriage of these two things, man, it makes, it makes our job as disciplinarians far easier. And we see ourselves less as, as the heavy that's going to punish somebody for doing wrong and more as the leader who's going to, Create some order and structure so that your life is easier down the road. You'll remember also that we talked about, I want to point this out again because I think it's a value. We talked about it in our family matter study back in the fall about three stages that children go through and about the importance of these three stages. In small children, the, the, your goal as a parent is obedience over defiance, to teach them to be obedient at first request. That I don't, have, I don't need to tell you four times, five times to do something. You need to obey when I ask you to obey. Why is that such, such value? Because that little three-year-old or two-year-old or little one-year-old toddler can learn to obey. That little, that little kid that's learning to obey is a little bitty thing, learning to obey when he reaches up and he sees something red and, that, and he don't know that it's hot, it's going to burn. See something red and, and hearing no and knowing what no means and pulling the hand back rather than looking at you and you're saying no and the hands keep going, no, 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 no. You know, and it ends up either getting smacked or burned, one or the other. And learning that there are consequences to the decision. You know why obedience is so important? Because they'll never learn to hear and obey God's voice. If they don't hear and obey yours, great correlation there. They'll never learn to hear the spirit of God and obey his voice in their heart. If they don't learn to obey yours, obedience is such a valuable principle. That's why it's so important in those earlier years. Now, as a child gets into pre-adolescence and pre-teens, the role starts to move from obedience to responsibility. In, In essence, you're bringing more order into the game. You're responsible for this. You're responsible for this. You're responsible for this. If you get outside the, your, your level of responsibility, there are consequences that you have to pay. Now, as a teenager, it may not be a smacked hand or a smack, smacked bottom. It may be some privileges taken away or it may be time, whatever. I don't know what works in your home, but there may be some, some con- there should be some consequences to, to irresponsibility in a preteen because you're trying to get that person to see you don't live responsibly in life. You're not going to do very well. 
You're not going to do well in the job. You're not going to do well in the marriage. You're not going to do well in the peer relationship. You're not going to do well, period, without responsibility. So you're trying to teach that in those preteen years so that as you get into those later teen and early adulthood years, then it moves not from obedience from, and to responsibility. It moves from responsibility to choice and consequence. You're trying to sow in wise choices because every choice has a consequence. I choose to live with this person. I've got the consequence of living with them for life. I choose to take this job. I've got the consequences of working for that individual and giving my best to that individual. I choose this in life. I choose that. There are this. Every decision has a consequence. And so as I have late teens and early adults in my home, what I'm trying to help them work through is, is to see the value of choice and that every choice has a consequence. That's true in life. It's true in, with adults. It's true with children. Now, uh, in that study, uh, or in that, in that uh, family matter study that we went through in the fall, uh, Mike put this box graphic up on the screen. I showed you a, a four-part study that Dr. Meyer of the Minerth Meyer Clinic did in 1989. This was a case study of about 50-something families that he did. He found out, as he observed, went into these homes and observed this kind of behavior, he found out four things that parents usually fit into one of four categories. And he saw and measured the results of the children in those homes, in those kinds of homes. The first one, and I want to, I want to revisit this with you so that it kind of finds a lodging place in your mind as it, as it pertains to how you parent. The first one, this permissive parent, is high on love but low on discipline. This is, there's a lot of homes like this in our day and time that are high on love but low on discipline. That says, man, I love you, I love you. And in fact, these are child-centered homes. The child pretty much rules the roost. Whatever the child wants to do, whatever the child says, the child-centered homes, and that's the way the home goes. High on love, low on discipline, low on consequence. Now, sometimes that's out of guilt because both parents work or they work away from home. Whatever the reason, high on love, low on discipline, those children don't do well. They don't do well in school. They don't do well with peers. They don't do well in relationships. Second uh, uh, box is the neglectful parent. The neglectful parent is both low on love and low on discipline. This is oftentimes from a parent who works a great deal outside the home. They feel guilty because they're not at home. They don't have the ability to love their, and be, be as affectionate with their children as they could or should. And so consequently, they don't make them behave and create the boundaries and the order that they could or should. And so this child is low on love and low on discipline. They need structure and order. They need this balance of order and vision we were talking about earlier, and they get neither. So consequently, they're on their it's kind of, how do I make it? I'm trying to figure out how... how on my own because I'm not seeing any order and structure from my parent on how to do that. They don't do well in school either. They don't do well with peers either. In fact, he studied uh, this on further to say that greater than 40% of those who come from homes of neglect end up in jail, end up incarcerated. The third box is this authoritative parent. A lot of these end up in jail too from the authoritative parent. The, author- the, uh, the, authorita- uh, yeah, the authoritative parent is, or authoritarian parent, sorry, um, is low on love and high on discipline. Low love, high discipline. In essence, you're going to do what I say regardless whether you like it or not. And I don't have to give you a reason. You just do it. You don't do it. Consequences will come. The beatings will begin. You know, if you don't. And so high, the, the high discipline and the low love, the consequence there is I'll obey you because the consequences are I'm going to get beaten or switched or, or, or locked up or whatever. And so at their first opportunity, and it's usually in adolescence, but at the first opportunity, I'm going to rebel. You know why? Because my attitude from that kind of home has been, I'm going to get this back someday. I'll take it right now because I have to. I live in this home. I've got to stay here. I've got to eat here. But I'll, and I'll take it right now, but I'm not going to take it forever. And when I get the opportunity to not take it anymore, you're going to see what not taking it looks like. That's why I say many in those kinds of homes grow up not only not doing well in school, but end up incarcerated because 
rebellion leads to consequence. And usually breaking the law leads to jail. However, this authoritative parent is where we want to come full circle to. And that is high on love, high on discipline. These kids are loved well. And their esteem is, is, is up here. They are disciplined well in the sense that there is order, there is direction. They know what the, what's expected. They know what the standards are in that home. And they know why. Because God's placed the parent in authority. The parent both loves them well and disciplines them effectively. They grow up with a sense of balance about who I am, what my life is supposed to be about. Decisions have consequences. I learn obedience as a child. I learn responsibility as an adolescent. I learn to make the wise choices as I get into adulthood. They grow up with this sense of Order because why? They, that's all they've seen their whole life. They're loved well and they're disciplined well. There are consequences to life. Now, why is that of such importance? I'll go back to what I said earlier. Without that kind of thing, you're laying an improper framework for how a person is to deal in their relationship to Jesus. They'll never see him. They'll never recognize him. They'll never hear him if they don't learn to do that in their home. If they, if they learn to recognize and, and, and have respect for and submit to authority in their home, his authority is going to be much easier in their life. If they don't see that in their home, boy, it's going to be hard to submit to his authority and even recognize it, much less submit to it. This third attitude, though, in the home is an attitude not only of understanding and discipline, but of obedience. Look at verses 22 and 23. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you to carry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work with all your heart. This word slaves literally in the Greek means worker, laborer, servant. Really slave is probably a a bad translation. And in fact, some back in the early days of our country used verses like this to validate slavery uh, and their use of slaves even though they were believers and felt like believers were supposed to have slaves because there were slaves in the scripture. There were slaves in the scripture. But, it, but in many times, in Paul talking about the New Testament, he used the word slaves synonymously with obedience, our obedience as slaves unto the Lord. And so that was misconstrued oftentimes to, 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 to validate their, their lifestyle of slavery. But this is not the only time, though, that Paul ties slavery to obedience. Turn to Romans chapter 6, and I want you to see... Uh, this verse here that's, that's very synonymous with this verse here in Colossians 3. Romans chapter 6 and verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart. The pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. He's tying this idea of slavery to obedience. In essence, we're slaves to obey him who made us to be slaves to obey him. Now, is he talking about just our relationship to God? No. He's talking about our relationship to our employers and and those we work for and those kinds of things. That's why this word of worker, servant, uh, uh, laborer, more or less, um, employee, if you will, is synonymous with this term slave here in the the literal Greek. So as you see this, what, what are we to take away from that? We're to take away from that this, a lazy work ethic is evidence of a lazy faith. If I'm lazy on the job, I'm probably lazy with the Lord too. If I'm lazy for, for the person I work for and the people in the company I work for, I'm probably lazy in my faith. I'm probably lazy in giving. I'm lazy in serving. I'm lazy in loving. I'm just lazy, period, in my faith. I expect God to give, 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 and do for me, and I don't work and serve him as effectively as I should. He's saying our work ethic should model our faith. Our work ethic should model our relationship with him. As we serve the Lord, we should also serve those we work for. 
as we serve those we work for, he's saying, do it as unto the Lord, as if God were your boss and not your little physical boss here on earth. Now, sometimes depending on our situation, that's hard to do. I realize some of these, some of these scriptures, in fact, a lot of scriptures hard, isn't it? When we just look at scripture and if it was all easy, wouldn't, wouldn't life as a believer be, hey, all bells and cotton candy? No, it isn't that way, is it? Sometimes we, he's talking about this, or talking about life and principles that are hard to put in place in, a, in such a pagan culture. But this pagan culture is the one who needs to see that this kind of employee, there's something different about them. There's something in their heart that's different. Not just in their behavior and in their work ethic. I'm glad for that. They grew up in a home that valued work. But there's something in their heart that's different. And bosses will see that. And fellow employees will see that too. And he's saying that's of incredible influence and of incredible value in your workplace. You should see your master as you see the Lord. Now, our culture doesn't look at life that way. Um, In fact, a number of years ago, Johnny Paycheck wrote a song called Take This Job and Shove It. Many of you heard that song. And it's kind of been a mantra for the working man, hasn't it? You know what? That that just flies in the face of Scripture, doesn't it? Based on what we're looking at here. What he's saying here is we need to see our employer as a God, more or less, or as a type of Christ, more or less. That we're working for them as unto the Lord. That we are grateful to have a job. Now, should we serve in jobs where we're underpaid, not appreciated, can't advance, whatever? I'm not saying that every job is from the Lord. Don't hear me say that. But we should appreciate employment. And we should see the value in work. And we're becoming a culture that sees the value in what we're entitled to instead of what we can give our employer. We're, seeing it, we're becoming a culture that says, I deserve to have this pay, these working conditions. And in essence, I'd, I'd like to do nothing and get paid for it. Can we, can we sign up for that kind of job somewhere? Most of us would love that. And that's, that's where our culture oftentimes moves is, can I do less and get more? And he's saying here, these verses, we need to do more and be okay with less if that's the situation we're in right then. Why? Because it's as unto the Lord, not as unto the paycheck, not as unto the treasurer, not as unto the HR person, as unto the Lord. It's kind of hard, isn't it? But that's what, he, that's what we're called to do, and even here in these verses, commanded to do. And some, some admonishment here in verse 1, 2 for masters, for, for bosses. Provide for your slaves, for your, for your workers, your servants, your employees. Provide for them what is right and fair, because you know that you have a master in heaven. So, it's not just a one-way street. We are, as employers, if you employ other people, you should be right by them and fair by them as the Lord would be and not take advantage of their, of their labor in front of you or even in what you pay them. Now, that's what it looks like in the home. I want to get outside the home now and look at what he's saying in these, in these last few ver- verses attitudinally about our culture. First of all, in the culture, we should have an attitude of prayer. Look at verse 2, chapter 4. Devote yourselves to prayer. Watch this. Being watchful and thankful and pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message. What is he saying? We should pray about and around four things. What are they? We should pray for insight. That's what he means when he's, when he's talking about being watchful. We should pray for insight. We should pray for an, an awareness, a sensitivity to what God's up to, what he's into, the things that he's doing in our life, the things that's going on around us, and how that affects our walk with him. We should pray for insight into those kinds of things. That's what it means to be watchful. We're to pray with a thankful heart. Thankful for what? Well, thankful for a job. 
for one thing. Thankful for employment. Thankful for a family. Thankful for a home. Thankful for a mother or dad who cared about you. Even if it was just one. If you come from a single parent home, somebody cared about you. Somebody brought you into the world and cared about you, cared for you. Unless you were adopted and then somebody cared about you too. But, but we, are, we are to be thankful and grateful for the situation God's places us in. Are they all ideal? Are they all idyllic with the, with the white picket fence and everything that goes on behind the house? is all? Be- no, they're not. Very few houses are like that. But we need to be grateful for the situation God's placed us in, realizing we could be born in Bangladesh somewhere. Do you realize that? that we could be sitting in, in some third world country under oppression tonight doing what we're doing. Our Chinese believers, our Chinese cohorts tonight can't do what you and I are doing. They've got to do it in secret. They'll be thrown, up, thrown in jail, many of them beaten for their faith in Christ to, to assemble together. You and I are assembled together here tonight. They do it in, 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 in basements. They do it in secret, day after day, week after week. You and I have great blessing. And we should be thankful for what we got and where we are. The third thing, though, is not only being praying for inside and, and praying with thanksgiving, but, but praying for each other. And Paul says it's personally. He says, pray for us. In essence, pray for me. Pray for let's, let's pray for each other. I need your prayer. We need each other's prayer. Got, going back to what we, what we were talking about earlier, what I shared with you about Gene's discovery of cancer, why does God, why does God collectively use and, and increase the value of our prayer together? For two reasons. One is, does it do, that to, do, we, do we do anything to change God's mind and his heart on something? I don't know. I, I really don't know. I don't think so. I think prayer is more about our posture and our position in front of him to say, God, I can't. In fact, we can't. In fact, if there was a church of 10,000 here, all of us praying, we, we can't. We're inadequate. But you can. And we take this to you because you can. And you will. You have over and over and over again in your word. And you can over and over again now. And you will according to your will. So why should we collectively pray about each, each other and for each other? To position ourselves to a God who is all and can do all. And we submit ourselves to him, whether our need is for physical healing or whether our need is to connect better with him, just by way of prayer. So should we pray for each other and with each other? Absolutely. That's what Paul's saying here. Pray for us. Let's pray for each other. We need each other's prayer. Why? Because we're in a world that wants to chew us up and spit us out and marginalize your influence, marginalize my faith and your faith, the things you and I believe, the things we hold important to hold dear. We're in a world and a culture that wants to marginalize and shelve us from now on. We need to pray for each other, that we have the will and the strength to battle in that kind of war that we face every day. Well, fourthly, not only should we pray for insight, pray with a thankful heart, and pray for each other, he says pray for the message. In essence, pray for the gospel. Now, are we praying that the gospel will do what it's supposed to do, and that is save people and reveal people their need for Christ? The gospel has power in and of itself. What we're to pray for, in the, as, he, as he talks about the gospel there, he says, uh, that the God may open a door for our message, that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray for the courage, in essence, to tell it. You and I, and I've, I've shared this with you over and over, over again, and I will as long as God gives me breath. There's no power like your power in your own story. Your own story is unique to you. It's unique to what God has done in your life, what God wants to do through your life. There's nobody's story like your story. You can tell your story like nobody can, even if your story is... I met Christ as a, as, a, as a young kid, and I've not been an axe murderer. Or, or maybe your story is, man, I, I ran as hard and fast from God and anybody else that looked like him as I could most of my life, and here's what he did. Or my life is, uh, 
You know, I, I've been through, I've walked through a hard place. I've walked through some sickness. I've walked through some illness. I've walked through divorce. I've walked through addiction. I've walked, you, you fill in the blank. I've walked, and here's what God's done. Nobody is, has the power to tell your story like you because your story is yours. It's uniquely yours. That's what he's praying for here to say, pray that I'll have conviction, that I'll have power to tell it in a way that's worthy of the gospel, in a way that's worthy to say, here's God's story. Here's how his story changed my story. Here's, my, here's how my story today is different because the story of the gospel. And here's where it is. Here's where it's found. That's how and, and, and for which we need to pray for each other. This second attitude in the culture is an attitude of wisdom. An attitude of wisdom. Look at verse 5. Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. As we pray for and as God uh, grants wisdom in all of this, we can more easily recognize opportunities. That's what he's talking about to say, Pray that I'll have, have, have wisdom to see the opportunities God places in front of me. And I'm going to tell you, I blow that every day. You probably do too. I can't, I can't, I wish I could count. They're, they're immeasurable. The times that, that I have a day later, two or three days later, gotten this dinger moment from the God to say, that's what that conversation with that dude was about a couple of days ago. He opened a spiritual door and I, I failed to not even walk through it. I failed to even see it. I failed to even recognize there was a door. Relationally, that guy opened up to me, and I didn't, not only did, not, did, I, not, did I fail to walk through it, and the, eternal, the consequences could be eternal with this person, I failed to even see the door. What's up with that? And that's what he's saying here. Pray for wisdom to see the opportunity, and that in seeing the opportunity, you'll step into it, step into the middle of it. Pray for wisdom to see these kind of opportunities, and, and he says, help me make the most of them. Now, here's where you and I mostly live. We live in the, in the land of I don't know enough. Most of you and I live in the land of, well, if I just knew more scripture, if I'd been a Christian longer, if I, if I was more spiritual, if I, if I, if I lived and walked like Jerry King, man, I could tell everybody. And that's where the enemy beats us up. That's where the enemy grabs us by the throat and says, when you know enough, two or three more verses, two or three more songs, maybe another six months in church, another course or two, when you know enough, then, you, you, then you've really got a story to tell. Boy, he beats us up about that over and over and over again because you know what you and I need to know? We need to know Jesus, and that's all we need to know. Now, it's great that we know more than that, and you'll never hear me say, forsake the word. Get your nose in it. Stay in it. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart through it. Glean on it. Feed on it. Become more like him. But if all you know is Jesus, you know enough to change your world. That's all the 12 knew. You know that? That's all they knew. They walked three years with him. They learned a lot, but they knew him. And they were telling his story over and over and over and over again and how his story could change the, has changed theirs and can change other folks. So you and I know enough. Let's get off this, this self-pity thing that the enemy's got us on. Say, well, you just don't know enough yet. You need to be a little smarter. You need to be a Christian longer. You need to be, have a little more wisdom. No, we know enough. We need to do more with what we know. The third attitude is this is an attitude of grace. Look in verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. What does that look like? What is a conversation seasoned with grace, a conversation full of grace, what does that really look like in a practical sense? Well, it looks like this. It looks like something who wants to know more about them than telling them about me. That's what it looks like in a conversation. It looks like, it looks like someone who asks more questions and makes fewer statements. 
That's what a conversation full of grace looks like. It looks like a person who says, I want to hear your story more than tell you mine. It's a person who listens more than talks. That's what a conversation full of grace looks like. It's it's a conversation that's more concerned with what God's doing in the life of that individual and hearing what their need for Jesus is so that we can know how to speak to it and step into it rather than telling them about ours and about our world. I fear most of our conversations are probably about us. Here's what's happening with my kids. Here's what's happening in my world. Here's what's happening at church. Here's what's happening at work. Here's what's happening with me. And most of us, we know ourselves better, don't we? And so we can talk about what we know rather than pursuing what God's doing in in the life of someone else that he allows us to cross paths with. with. So a conversation full of grace looks like, in fact, conversations full of grace, they they should reveal our own vulnerability. We should be vulnerable at some level in a grace-filled conversation. Most of us aren't comfortable with that. We're not comfortable moving into vulnerability in a conversation with somebody else. But he also says here in verse 6 that it's to be seasoned with salt. It's to be a conversation full of grace. It's to be disarming. It's to be open. It's to be vulnerable. It's to consider them more important than ourselves. But it's to be seasoned with salt. What is he saying by that? That at the opportunity, and we need wisdom to recognize the opportunity. We saw that. At the opportunity, when that opportunity is open, we drive truth right in the middle of it. We drive salt. That's what he's talking about. We drive, we drive the salt of truth right through the middle of it. Not in a way that says, you know, I'm going to go, go buy a pair of wingtip shoes and a big thick King James black Bible about this thick and just thump people over the head with, with Jesus, you know, turn and burn. That's not what he's saying at all. But he's saying, when those opportunities present themselves in conversation and a door is open, go through it. Go through it with truth. And the truth may just be what God's done for you. Or the truth may be what God's done for all of us in his death on the cross. But he's saying, don't forsake the opportunity to inject truth into that conversation. Make it full of grace. Disarm them. Let it be less about you and more about them. But when they open the door, and in fact, that's what the conversation full of grace is about. It's about them feeling comfortable enough to open the door. And when they open the door, walking through it with salt, walking through it with truth to say, here's what we need. I need this too. You probably need it too. You're probably like me. I don't do this very well. Let's, let's not do this well together and find out what God's saying. Can we walk together in this? And that's what he's talking about with saying, in, injecting these grace conversations with truth to say life for us is about balance. And in fact, the scripture describes Jesus himself as being full of grace and full of truth. He's the perfect balance to life. That's what he's talking about in this verse. To say our conversation should look like that too. Our conversation should be full of grace toward that individual. Providing grace beyond even what we think we can or what we think they're worthy of. And yet when that door is opened, we drive that through that door with the opportunity of truth. And that's what the salt does. It seasons. Well, well, I don't know how these attitudes strike you. I don't know how, how you look at them and say, well, it looks like me, this doesn't. Stephen Covey is, is, a, is a person who is, 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 a, is a corporate speaker. He's a motivational speaker, does a lot of sales seminar, seminars and marketing seminars. And he came up with a statement years ago that your attitude determines your altitude in the corporate world. Or in, you, you, you convey that however you will. I'm not sure whether that's true or not, but I do know this. Your attitude determines the effectiveness and the influence of your home. I know that based on the truth of God's word, that it's true every time. Your attitude about your home and your role there determines your influence outside your home. 
And your attitude in your culture determines the influence in your culture. The attitude with which you see people. Um, and attitude is a choice we make every day. It determines the harmony in your home. It determines the influence in your culture. And it's a choice you make day after day after day after day after day. That's why we pray for wisdom about the opportunities. Because those are choices we make every day. And if I choose the wrong one, the consequences may be severe. And if I choose the right one, the consequences may be severe too. But in a great way. So as we, we go through each day, we're, we're making these choices of attitude. And, and it is, in essence, how we respond to things. Attitude, attitude is shaped by things. It's shaped by beliefs. It's shaped by by circumstances, it's shaped by culture, it's shaped by, by parental influence, it's shaped by a lot of things attitude is. But if your attitude and my attitude toward our faith, toward each other, is like that woman I saw today in Food City. And you gotta climb through this you gotta climb through this much bitterness and resentment that's all over the face to get to the Jesus in her. And there's probably Jesus in her. But I sure couldn't see it. She probably couldn't see it in me either. I was probably looking at my list to figure out what I'm supposed to pick up, make sure I don't get the wrong brand. That's what I'm usually guilty of doing is bringing home the wrong brand. And so, but as I'm looking at my list, she probably didn't see much Jesus in me either, I fear. But I wonder if people's got to crawl through our attitude to get to the Jesus in us, or if that needs to change. I'd say if you're like me, it needs to change. My conversations need to be fuller of grace, more full of grace than they are. Um, I need to be more concerned about what God's doing in the life of that person than I am changing their heart, changing their attitude. That's most of the time how my conversations take place. I'm listening for an open door where I can just go through it. I mean, since it's open, man, man, bam, I'm in. And that's not the way God wants that to occur. He wants that to be, he wants that to be grace-laden. He wants that to be full of grace to where my conversation totally disarms them and, and there's, no, there's no judgment, there's no whatever. And, and my conversations aren't like that often enough. Maybe yours aren't either. My attitudes aren't where they need to be often enough. Maybe yours aren't either. Here's the thing. Let's change. If we see the things in Scripture that we know we need to do and we don't do them, we're an idiot. I mean, we're just a spiritual idiot. I don't know how to put that more bluntly. Of God showing us truth, and we look at the truth and say, okay, no thanks. Life goes better for us spiritually. It goes better for us circumstantially. It goes better for us culturally when we line ourselves up with this book. It will. So if we see attitudes that, that God has brought to our spirit tonight that need changing in us, let's change them. Let's just draw a line in the sand tonight to say, tonight, I'm going to change them. Tomorrow, I'm going to have this challenge all over again. I'm going to cross the same line tomorrow. I'm going to change them tomorrow. And then Tuesday, I'm going to change them Tuesday to where sooner or later, I look back on days and weeks and months of change, and my attitude has changed, and I think differently about it. Um, that, that thought never perceives my mind, never, never enters my mind anymore about having my own way, my own sense of entitlement, what God ought to do for me. My life ought to be blessed. I'm not blessed enough. I'd have a better attitude. God bless me. That's not, what, that's not anywhere in what we looked at tonight. It's not conditional upon God's blessing. It has to do with our relationship to him. And our relationship with him ought to drive our attitude toward him and toward others. I hope that's the case with you. Um, if God is doing something in your heart, has shown you attitudinally, spiritually, some things that he needs to work on and do surgery on, I hope you'll be willing to do that. Um, if, if you need Jerry or my assistance after worship to help you walk through that, that's why we're here. You're welcome to come and pray as we sing in just a moment if you'd like to. But, but the more important thing is this. If God reveals something to me that's truth and I know it, I'm forced to make a response. Whether I make it here tonight, I'm forced to respond to truth. Why? 
Because he's revealed it to me for a reason. He's helped me see, you're not there. And you need to get there. I want you there. I want you to look like me. That's what there is. I want you to look like me. Will you move in that direction? I want to challenge us to not do that. Thanks again for listening to today's message from Cross Point Church, helping people navigate the journey toward an authentic, biblical, and contagious walk with Christ.